0: I'm just going to start differently and just pray and, and ask God to settle my own soul down and just be able to, to preach your word. So we you pray with me? Father, please, Lord, may your Holy Spirit fill this place. May you set a fire in us. May we just be able to calm our minds and our hearts for the next um, 30 minutes and just hear your word and hear your message and continue to worship you and praise you. And may we go from this place... In, in a way that we can be a witness, that we can share our faith with others, that we can love others, and I pray, Father, that you would, would speak through me today. Um, I want to be a witness for you. I want to be an encouraging, inspiring uh, man of God, and I pray, Father, for all of us to, to be witnesses, uh, because that's what you've called us to do. It's clear in your word, and I pray that will become evident today. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. So I have a fun Bible trivia question for you. My fun Bible trivia question is this. Who wrote most of the New Testament? Who wrote most of the New Testament? So go ahead, shout it out if you think you know who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul. I hear lots of Paul. Anybody else? Any other choices besides Paul? Luke. I hear Luke. All right. Any other other authors of the New Testament? the Holy Spirit? Okay, uh, uh, that's a good answer. Alright, well, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a tricky tricky kind of question because if I say who wrote most of the New Testament, what am I really saying by most? Am I saying the most books? Because there's 27 books in the New Testament and 14 of them were written by Paul, if you count Hebrews. So if, I, if it's book count, then yeah, Paul's the winner, which is what most of you said, so you're right there for sure. But if you're talking about content, if you're talking about the words... Who wrote the most? It's actually Luke. Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament in terms of content, where Paul was at 23% and then do you know who was in third place? John, that's right. John wrote 20%. Uh, So I added all that up because, you know, being a math guy, uh, I added all that up and that's three authors writing 70% of the New Testament. Which is interesting. Now, I wanted you to get a big picture perspective in terms of the whole Bible. So I had this little infographic I found um, and you won't be able to see the words, and that's okay, because the size of the circles are representative of the amount of words that the authors wrote. And so five authors for the whole Bible. Moses is the largest red circle there. Um, Moses uh, wrote um, quite a bit of uh, the first five books of the Bible, if you know the whole Bible. And then Ezra, which we've covered Ezra, you know, the book after Ezra. Ezra also is credited with First and Second Chronicles. And then Luke, there's Luke right next to Ezra, and then Jeremiah, and then Paul. So you have five guys that wrote almost half the Bible, which is is interesting. But here's what I want you to keep in mind, because the person that said the Holy Spirit is the author um, is is absolutely correct, because Peter mentions this, um, it makes a point of this, actually. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But as I like to say, God moved the men who moved the pen. That's how I always say it. God moved the men who moved the pen. The Holy Spirit is truly the author of the Bible. And when men wrote the Bible, and I know some of you, you know, you might be skeptical. And you might think, well, you know, um, I don't agree with that. You know, like, how can that be? Um, Well, when they wrote a book in the Bible, for example, in the New Testament, you know, we have 27 books in the New Testament, when they wrote a book in the Bible, um, that was not considered to be authentic as part of it. Uh, uh, there were some s- serious criteria there. But what we don't really grasp is, is that the people, I mean, this, ultimately, the Bible was not, was not written until later on, but the people confirmed it. You know, if you write something about me, right? And, and you write a letter about me, about my past, and, and you share something in there that's not true, not factual, there's going to be a lot of people in my family that are going to let you know about it, right? That's, that's not true. That's not factual. Well, that was what was happening, right? I mean, you got 300 years of, of uh, Christianity in the first 300 years where these men, uh, until it ultimately became the canon, if you will, of the New Testament, That there was books that were written that were not factual, not correct. They're not included in the New Testament. They're not part of the 27. Right? We've talked about this in the past. Anyway, I don't want to go off on too far of a tangent here. But here we are in the book of Acts, and we're in the book of Joel. The book of Acts and the book of Joel. Mostly in the book of Acts. Now, how many of you like a good sequel to a movie Maybe you have in your mind some good sequels to movies, you know, like I love the Mission Impossible movies, I love the James Bond movies, the Star Wars movies, but there's one sequel that tops them all, in my opinion, and it's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, (laughs) right? I mean, you got quotes from Christmas Vacation, don't you? I love the quote by uh, Clark there, Dad, you taught me everything I need to know about exterior illumination. Picture that house, right, illuminated. Um, well, there are sequels that are illuminating in the in Acts, the book of Acts, which is really Acts of the Apostles, or as I would like to tell you, Acts of the Holy Spirit's Holy Spirit through the Apostles. That is a sequel uh, from the author Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, the the story of Jesus. Obviously, um, Luke was a historian, and a medical doctor. I don't know if you knew that, but Luke was a medical doctor. And medical doctors, if you know, they can get real technical. And Luke was very technical. He's very accurate in a lot of his descriptions of things. But his first work about Jesus, his second work, the sequel, the one we're looking at today, is about the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit 50 times. You can't miss that when you read the book of Acts. It's about the Holy Spirit. And the cool part about The book of Acts is it links the gospel to the epistles. You got the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you got the epistles, the church letters, Galatians and Ephesians. You know how I remember that is General Electric Power Company, G E P C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's the easy way to remember it there. But you got all these letters to the churches through, um, uh, and and the link is the book of Acts, because that's kind of what happened after Jesus resurrected, right? What happened next? Well, Luke explains it. Now, the key verse of Acts is chapter 1, verse 8. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses. Who says this? Jesus says this before he um, ascends back to heaven. He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But there's a part of that that you can't forget to say, which I just did. What's the words that you have to have? The power of the Holy Spirit. You can't be a witness without the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be in you. You have to have the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, we back up a little bit in time, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, as he was approaching his death, he said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, He said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper. That's capitalized, referring to the Holy Spirit. He will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him, but they don't see him or know him. But you know him because he dwells with you, and he will be in you. John baptized with water. Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here it comes. This is the Holy Spirit about to dwell in believers. It's in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit had not come yet, but now it's going to come. It's going to dwell. It's going to live in those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, the Holy Spirit gives the disciples in Acts chapter 2. How many of you read it in preparation? Great. We're reading through the whole Bible in a year, and and we're almost there. (laughs) A lot of us have have, um, been going the distance, so that's good. But the Holy Spirit gives the disciples... The ability to speak, and the Bible says in tongues. But when you look at the translation, it just means languages. And I'll explain this, okay? Because I know in many churches today, you may have been in a church where they spoke in tongues and it was a language that was not identifiable by anybody. It sounded like gibberish to you, right? But so does a lot of languages in the world that I don't understand. I I don't get it, right? As they say, it's all Greek to me, right? Like, you know, like a lot of languages don't make sense. Okay, but you have churches today where people are speaking in languages that don't make sense, um, and they call it speaking in tongues. But when we look at the Bible, what the Bible really says, what is the tongue? It's a language. And it's actually a language that was understood by someone. And that's really important that we understand that if a person speaks in tongues, it should be a language that someone understands. Give you an example. I tried to learn Spanish as an adult, I took French in high school and but that didn't take and then i tried spanish as an adult and that still didn't take no hablas español okay that's about all i know i can throw a few more words at you i make them up spanglish is that what they call it right i'm just not very good but just imagine if someone came to church today they didn't speak english but they spoke spanish and god gave me the ability through the holy spirit to speak fluent spanish to them and I had a conversation with them, and I explained to them the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship we can have in the Holy Spirit. And I said, listen, if you will, we will confess your sins, you will admit you're a sinner, believe Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, confess, repent, turn to him, he will give you the Holy Spirit. And if I said all of that, explained all of that to them in Spanish, and they responded and said, yes, I, 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 I want to become a Christian, I want to follow Jesus, all of that happened in Spanish? Well, that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. When you read Acts chapter 2, that's what happened. There were, there were disciples who couldn't speak all the languages of the nations, and the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to do that in Acts chapter 2. Why were all these people in Jerusalem, by the way, for uh, speaking all these different languages? And the answer is Pentecost. It's a 50-day after-Passover celebration that the Jewish people had. Now, you recall, because we've been in the Old Testament a lot, right? In the Old Testament, we have the nation of Israel scattered, right? The Jewish people being scattered because of their disobedience to God. So they went and lived in all the other nations. Some returned to Jerusalem, but most didn't. Remember, we talked about that. And and they're not, they're they're spread out. So what do they do? Well, they're fitting into the culture, right? They're learning the language of that nation or that nation. But they have their Jewish heritage. So they come back to Jerusalem for the celebration, of Pentecost, and they're all back in Jerusalem. And, boy, if you think about it, I mean, isn't it amazing that, G- that God picked that time to have the Holy Spirit come? God's pretty smart. I mean, right. I mean, they're all there, right? All the nations come together for that moment. And at Pentecost, boom, they speak all these different languages, and the Holy Spirit um, just gifts them to, to explain what God has done through Jesus. And when all these people heard it, in their own language, they confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They believed he was the Messiah they had been waiting for. And it says in Acts 2 that 3,000 people got saved and were baptized. Now that's amazing. The Holy Spirit was on fire. Literally, <laughs> figuratively, right? Um, and that's when the church began. That's the beginning of the church. And we see the, the, what I would call the, the simple church if you will, Acts 2.42. I'll bring it up on the screen for you. In Acts 2.42, the church was really simple. Um, they didn't get all um, caught up in uh, um, different things that we can get caught up in in church and complain about this or that. They, they just focused on four things. It says that they gathered together, right? Um, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what you're doing right now. They wanted to hear the Word of God. And then they had fellowship, which is not just getting together for some cake and cookies. There's cake afterwards. You should stay. <laughs> but it's not just for that. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it's deeper, man. It's, it's, it's celebrating. It's, it's helping people through their, their tough times. That's fellowship. And breaking bread, communion, sharing meals together, and praying together. Praying together. We're going to start a Wednesday... Uh, service. We're going to have about six weeks of it before Christmas, and it's going to be a time of prayer. Part of that's going to be a time of prayer on Wednesday nights. So I hope you'll you'll join. We'll, we'll put an announcement out when that's going to begin. But that's what the Simple Church did. That's how it began in Jerusalem because they witnessed. They did what they, Jesus told them to do. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now it took a bit of persecution in Acts chapter 8 to get him to move on to Judea and Samaria. And when we read Acts, chapters 8 through 12, that's them spreading the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 29, you see the Holy Spirit goes to the ends of the earth. And that was through Paul and his mission trips around the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to Rome, which is where he wanted to go. Now, the book is simply about that, being a witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're we're to be a witness. The Holy Spirit spreading to all people, not just Jewish people. That's the other cool part, is the Holy Spirit fills Jews and Gentiles. And that's us, unless you tell me otherwise. You're a Gentile, all right, unless you have Jewish heritage. Now, I doubt you caught what I said, and I made a, a slight infraction, if you will. I said that Acts goes to chapter 29. But it doesn't. Actually, it only goes to chapter 28. The reason why I said that is because I believe when you finish reading the book of Acts, when you get done with chapter 28, you probably had a weird look on your face like I did. Like, that's it? Like, that can't be the end. That's not a proper ending. I mean, we're so sitcom-based, aren't we? You know, the movie has to finish on this positive, strong note or whatever. In Acts chapter 28, it ends with Paul in a jail cell in Rome. It's kind of like, wait a minute. But I think Luke did that on purpose. I really do. I think Luke intentionally did that because the Holy Spirit is still writing chapter 29. We are still writing chapter 29 because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He's still spreading. The church is still growing. God is at work. We are called to be his witnesses to Jerusalem. That would be St. Clair Shores. Judea, Samaria, Michigan, Macomb County, Wayne County, Oakland County, the ends of the earth. Everywhere. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be a witness. And we don't do it with our own cleverness or strength. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm asking you today, can I get a witness? (laughs) From the congregation. (laughs) Will you be a witness? We'll see. We'll see. There are um, two um, very, very important days in your life. In fact, I would call them the two most important days of your life. The two most important days of your life. Not the day that uh, you beat that video game that you've been trying to beat your whole life. Not the day that you win the championship, whatever your, your your sport is. Not the day you even win the lotto. That's not the most important day in your life not the day you fell in love. It's not the day you got married. It's not the day your kid was born or your children were born. The two most important days in your life, the day you were born and the day you discovered why you were born. Those are the two most important days in your life. The day you were born and the day you discovered why you were born. I will tell you what drove me to Jesus. I was consumed with this question in my mid-twenties wanting to know what was my purpose in life. I kept asking that question over and over again. Why am I here? Why was I born? What is my purpose? I had gotten to the point as a young man where I had accomplished all of my life goals. I know you think, well, that's that's saying a lot. And it is. I had some big goals, but I accomplished them all. And I got to the end of those goals, and I started thinking, there's more? There's got to be more? I'm not satisfied. What is my purpose in life? So, my mom had been going to a church for a long time. I said, well, I'll start going there. I'll start going to church. Maybe the answer is at church. And honestly, over a period of time, God opened my eyes. It was a slow process, but he began to open my eyes. And there was a a godly man at this church that, that witnessed to me. He was a witness to me. He answered my questions. And one day with him, He was praying, my my eyes were completely opened, and I understood for the first time that God loved me. He truly loved me. He was real, and he had a plan for my life. That's the day I mark as the day in my book where I knew that I was a Christian, and I was going to follow Jesus the rest of my life. That's the day I discovered why I was born. And I'm forever a witness to his love. I don't think my story is uncommon. I think a lot of you have the same story. And I think in the book of Acts, there's two guys that had a similar story. Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul. I'm going to start with Peter. Um, they're the two figures in the book of Acts that, that we can look at. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. We see that in the book of Acts. He followed Jesus for three and a half years. He had some ups and downs, right? We all know of Peter, right? They... they they talk first, and act, you know, or they act first, and then think about what they did and later on. and right, they, you know, they, they say something they shouldn't say. Now, that was Peter, right? Peter was, was out there um, and, and made some mistakes, but he was a leader. And Jesus recognized that in him. And one of the, the high points in Peter's life during the life of Jesus, in, during his ministry, is when Peter confessed Jesus was God. Because they were speculating who is Jesus, and Peter said, Well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Peter was like, or Jesus was like, Yes, that's exactly right. And he says this, I think it's important for us to see. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, I tell you what, Peter, by the way, he gave him that name. You should know that, right? His name was Simon. But he gave him the name Peter, which actually means little rock. He said to him, On this rock I will build my church. He was speaking of himself, Jesus was, because he's the cornerstone, the rock, the big rock, the important rock, the foundation rock. But he says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I will tell you that Catholics believe that this text, from this text, that Peter was the first pope. They believe that. But I believe what this text says, when you understand the context of it in the Bible, you understand that Jesus was telling Peter, you're going to be the first church planter. That's what he was saying. You're going to plant the first church. The church is going to begin with you, and then it's going to spread, and it's going to need a lot of leaders. And we see that in the book of Acts. We see it's not Peter being the the sole person. It's multiple leaders. It's, it's, it's Jesus' brother, his half-brother James, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after he was resurrected. You see multiple leaders. So here's a high point in, in Peter's life, but then there was a low point. Remember when he denied knowing Jesus? Yeah, three, three times they asked him, do you know Jesus? And just before he was being crucified, and he says, no, I don't, I don't know him. And the rooster crowed, and... At the end of John's Gospel, because of that denial, Peter was in the dumps, right? You may feel like that sometimes, your witness, maybe you feel bad about your witness, um, about how you share your faith, And, and so Jesus restored Peter. He asked him three times at the end of John's Gospel, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter said, Yes, yes, you know I do. And I believe that's when Jesus was telling Peter, You have a purpose. You have a calling on your life. There's a why. There's, a, there's, there's something for you you need to do. Shepherd my sheep. That's what he told them. Love my church. Shepherd my sheep. And so, Peter, we see him in Acts chapter 1. He's kind of leading the disciples. There were about 100 of them in the upper room praying. And they were actually conducting a little bit of church business. They had to add a, a 12th disciple, as the scripture says. Right, Matthias was chosen. And then Acts chapter 2 is when he gives this the sermon at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And here's where Joel comes in. Joel, this is why I put Joel and Acts together, because Peter says, quotes Joel the prophet. Joel the prophet was known as the one who talked about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord has a lot of meanings, um, and people will interpret it different ways, but here the day of the Lord is referring to the day the Holy Spirit came. And here's where we see it. I'll, I'll show you on the screen here. Um, In Joel chapter 2, it's the same text as Acts chapter 2. Joel says, and Peter quotes, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Romans 10, 13 as well. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think when this sermon was being delivered by Peter, I think he was realizing at that very moment, like, this is it. This is why I'm here. This is my why. This is my purpose in life. I'm, the, I'm a witness. Because he says in Acts two thirty two this Jesus God raised up, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. We, the disciples, all of us are witnesses. We saw Jesus alive before and after the resurrection, or after the crucifixion. So in Acts 2, you see this brand new Peter, right? He's no longer a coward denying Jesus. He's a powerful Peter, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he helps lead the church in Jerusalem. He shepherds the sheep. In Acts chapter 4, you'll see he's beaten him and John for healing a man and preaching in the name of Jesus. Yet they still gathered together, right? And they prayed for boldness, and the place was shaken, right? They didn't care that they were getting beaten because they were going to preach in the name of Jesus. I love that response. You know, the religious leaders were like, you need to shut up about Jesus, okay? We just crucified him, or he just died, and you're telling us it's our fault. You need to shut up. You need to be quiet. And they're like, do you think we should listen to you or listen to God? (laughs) Right? I mean, that's what they said. We're going to listen to God. We're going to do what we need to do. And Peter's in charge of this. He's leading them. They handle some church conflict. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira were lying to the Holy Spirit. They dropped dead. You know that in Acts chapter 5? That's a scary moment. I think that was intentional because they needed to get that the church was not to be messed with. You are not going to lie to the Holy Spirit in the church. At chapter 6, they had a little problem um, with the food pantry. So that gets some people's attention, right? The food pantry, they were feeding. The, the Greek widows were not getting the same amount of food as the Jewish widows. So they had to appoint deacons. And if you look closely at the names of the deacons, you recognize that they chose wisely. They chose Greek deacons, which is pretty cool, to lead and help make sure that it was being fair. Chapter 7, the scattering of the church. We talked about that. Stephen is martyred. But then all the way to chapter 15, Peter is right there deciding on doctrine with James, who seems to be now the leader of the Jerusalem church, actually. James seems to be the leader, not Peter. So, the, the doctrine, by the way, was um, the new Christians were being pressured by the, the Jewish people to obey all 613 commands. Imagine that. Imagine if uh, you belonged to this church, became a member, and I handed you a booklet and said, here you go, here's 613 commands. Good luck. When you mess up, come to me we'll talk about it sacrifice. They said, listen, it's not about that. It's about your heart. And they talked about four things. So that's Peter, right? And then in chapter 16, you read in Acts, well, we don't really hear about Peter anymore. Did he stop being a witness? No, he didn't. He continued to be a witness. Um, he continued to fulfill his purpose. In fact, he died around 64 to 68 A.D. by crucifixion, and he would not allow himself to be crucified like Jesus he didn't feel himself worthy, so he was crucified upside down. That was his humility. Now, why does Acts chapter 16 stop talking about Peter? And the answer is because Luke wrote it, and you see a change in the pronouns. It goes from they did this and they did that to we did this and we did that and we went to Galatia and we, because Luke joins Paul in the mission. And Luke begins to follow Paul. And that's what we see in the rest of Acts. Paul was formerly known as Saul. And Saul, as a young man, thought he knew his purpose in life. He was very religious. I know we give the Pharisees a hard time because Jesus did in Scripture, but the Pharisees were really just very religious people, very pious people, trying to honor God by obeying the commands. That's who the Pharisees were. And Saul was a Pharisee to the letter of the law. And so when he heard of a group of people calling themselves the Way, that's what Christians were called, the the Way, he was like, that's a cult, I'm going to wipe it out. He was there holding the coats of the guys who stoned Stephen, the first martyr. And he was on his way to Damascus to follow through on exterminating these Christians. He was going to end the way. While he was on his way to Damascus, he was blinded by a light, and he heard from Jesus. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? I'm the answer. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Your religion that you follow so closely, you're missing the point. (laughs) I'm it. And that was a huge day for Saul. Now, he went into Damascus, it says, and uh, while he was in Damascus, um, he got his sight back, um, as many of you know as you read, and he um, uh, he, he, he heard his, his mission in life. He had a, what we like to call a come-to-Jesus moment. <laughs> you had that in your life? And he realized that this was his purpose and why he was born, and he was a witness. But now some of us... Um, might get confused because the the way that Luke wrote it, and I'll bring it up um, for you in Acts 9.23, after he had gone into Damascus, it says, When many days had passed. When many days had passed is actually three years. okay? Because when you read Galatians, you find out that after Saul had this road to Damascus, come to Jesus moment, he went to Arabia for three years, and he learned... From Jesus, he learned many things. And then he comes back to Damascus, and it says that they, um, the Jews plotted to kill him. And they lowered him in a basket through a hole in the wall. So if you think you're a basket case, Paul was literally a basket case, all right? They lowered him through the wall in a basket. Um, and he, he, he escapes, and he goes to Tarsus, and he spends years there, maturing in his faith. And it's after all of those years that Paul is then commissioned by the church to be a missionary. And he goes with Barnabas and Mark, you remember that, and they head out. So if you think, oh, you you just became a Christian, you think, oh man, right now, now I'm going to go and I'm going to be a missionary. I doubt it. I think God has to work in us and mature us uh, before he puts us in those places of ministry where he calls us. So let God do his work in you. Don't get impatient if you, if you feel that way. Paul ended up in Rome because he was on a mission trip and he, um, the, 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 the Pharisees wanted to kill him. So he appealed to Caesar and so they took him to Rome. And um, we're going to be covering Romans next week. Romans is a great book. And so you've got to read it for next week. But So he's on his way there. And then how did Paul die? He was decapitated. Uh, Emperor Nero ordered it, just like Peter. Same time frame, 64 to 68 A.D. They both died around that time. The church would continue till 313 A.D. under persecution. There was a guy by the name of Constantine who was the new emperor in Rome, and he made Christianity legal, but um, that didn't stop Christians. Under persecution, it seems the church grows the most. Now, maybe that's just a coincidence, but it does seem that Christians being persecuted doesn't stop them from motivate or being motivated to witness. In fact, uh, many nations will see great uh, revivals when they're being persecuted. I give you a case in point, China's growth after 1940, right? After they became a communist nation, I don't know all the specific dates, but their growth is exponential, something like 50 to 80 million new Christians, underground Christians. Now, I want to finish by helping you be a witness, because that's the question I asked you. Can, you. can I get a witness? And I want you to be a witness, and I wanted you to understand that that's what the Holy Spirit does um, when it speaks to our heart. It, it helps us be a witness. But let me give you some practical things. How can you be a witness? How can you be a witness to your friends, your relatives, your associates, your school um, friends, your... your, your um, neighbors, right? How can you be a witness to these people? Because some of us might be comfortable witnessing and some of us might not be. But let me just give you a few things. First of all, you need to bear fruit in your own life. St. Francis of Assisi said, show me, uh, share, uh, share your testimony and use words if necessary. Ever heard that before? Share your testimony and use words if necessary. Because your actions... Speak volumes, and I say, your fruit speaks volumes. Your fruit. You see, I have, uh, we have three trees in our backyard, and right now, if you came over and looked at those trees, you'd know them because they have fruit on them. There's two apples and a, and a peach tree. They have fruit showing, and that is what the Holy Spirit says in the Bible t- tells us that as Christians. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in you. Galatians 5, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are those things evident in your life? Do people see in you love? A peace that goes beyond all understanding? A joy? Do they see self-control in you? That's bearing fruit. That speaks volume. People look at you and say, man, why are you different? That's how you can be a witness. You don't even have to say anything. That should be comforting for some of us who are quiet and shy and don't like to talk to people. Be a witness by bearing fruit. Number two, speak their language. This is where you get to speak in tongues. Speak their language. This year I started a YouTube channel because I love to go fishing, as you saw maybe in that picture of our vacation. That's what I like to do when we go to Florida, I go fishing that's my 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 uh, uh, serenity, if you will. But I started on YouTube a, uh, um, a channel of fishing videos. Now you might think, okay, great, you know, see all those fish you're catching. Um, but here's the thing: every winter, when I can't go out on my fishing boat, I watch fishing videos of other guys <laughs> because you know we're just living the dream, right? they are trying to live in the uh, through other people. Well. My fishing videos are a little different because there's a message in mine. Because I know how to speak the language of a fisherman. And I know how to connect things we do on the water to Jesus Christ and things he does in our life. See, you speak somebody's language. You're really good at cooking. You're really good at talking about horses or cars. You're good at talking about something that other people are interested in. And when you make that connection with someone, you can speak their language and you can connect it to Jesus. And that's what you do. You be a witness. You bridge the gap for them. You help them understand. Be a witness by speaking their language. And then thirdly, begin right where they are at. Nobody wants to hear how smart you are and how many Bible verses you've memorized and how often you go to church. and Hit them where they're at start where they're at. In Acts chapter 8, there's an example of this. You see, there was an Ethiopian eunuch that had traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship God. And on the way back, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And he was on a passage that was talking about the Messiah to come. And the Holy Spirit, this is the key part of the story, right? The Holy Spirit told Philip, to go next to that chariot. And Philip went, because he obeyed the Holy Spirit. And he went right next to that chariot, and he heard this guy reading Isaiah, and he says what you should say. Do you understand what you're reading? He began right where he was at. Do you get what you're reading? And he says, I I don't understand what I'm reading. Can you explain it to me? Hop on board. So he hopped on, and he explained the good news about Jesus. And as they were traveling along, the Ethiopian looked out and said, Hey, look, there's water. Will you baptize me? Because he clearly believed and he understood that after you believe, you get baptized in the name of Jesus. And he baptized him. And many people believe that that Ethiopian is the one who went back to Ethiopia and was a witness there. And that's how the revival began in Ethiopia. Because Philip obeyed the Holy Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, be a witness Beginning where people are at. Just simple ideas for you, simple um, thoughts. Now, you might get fired up about witnessing. You might go out and share your faith now, and I hope you do. All right? And I hope you don't get discouraged because sometimes, sometimes you share your faith with someone a hundred times over and they still don't receive Christ. They still don't believe. Okay? Um, Sometimes they're just blinded, they can't understand it. But sometimes there are Christians who are just really, really shy. Maybe you're going to walk out of here and you're going to be like, yeah, good message, good good sermon, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm too private about my faith. I just like to keep it to myself. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're somewhere in between. But here's the thing. If you try to witness on your own, with your own cleverness, your own power, it's not going to work. It's not going to work out very well at all. In fact, I remember when I was a young Christian and I thought, man, I've got to tell people about my faith, share with what's going on. And I thought, man, if I just say the right things, if I just use the correct word, the correct story, share the right verse, they're going to believe and get saved and it's going to be awesome. Oh, how wrong I was. <laughs> because that didn't work. I needed to trust in the same power that gave boldness to Peter and those disciples. I needed to trust in the same power that guided Paul. When he wanted to go north, they said, nope. Holy Spirit said, go this way. I needed, I needed to trust, and we need to trust in the same power that spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, and the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. Amen. Amen. The same power that lives in you, the same power that lives in us, is the power we need to have to be a witness. That's what will make you a powerful witness. There are times where I've been up here and I thought, man, this is going to be a great sermon. I love the illustrations I have. I love all this. And I get done and nothing. There's times I come up here and I think, "Geez, I'm going to bomb. (laughs) I'm in trouble. And I just pray and ask God to work through me and man, it hits people right, right where they needed to hear. They, They heard something that I said and I didn't even... Plan on saying it, and God just uses that. That's what God's going to do with you. You just trust in His power. I'll invite the team to come up and sing uh, our final song. Let's pray together. God, I pray today we can be a witness for you. I pray, Lord, that we would trust in Your power. Lord, we don't we don't have to have it perfect. We don't have to know the the whole Bible. We don't have to have Verses memorized to be a witness. We just need to have your power and share that power. Father in heaven, I pray today that we would be a witness to you. I pray that we would go from this place and, and we would just see you open up those doors. Maybe with people we've been talking to just all the time and, and, and they never before wanted to know about our faith. But then all of a sudden they're asking us, why we go to church or why we believe what we believe. And God, when that door opens, let us walk right through it. Let us be bold. Let us share our faith. Let us do it with your power. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen.